Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 75. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 21 through 24 of 2 Samuel and follow with a consideration of the strangest conclusion to a book of the Tanakh to date. Fasten your seatbelts. You're in for a ride. The coda of 2 Samuel follows a highly formalistic construction, or as Robert Alter points out, a neatly chiastic structure. That is, X-shaped, a crosswise arrangement of concepts, or in our case, stories, that are repeated in reverse order. So we begin with a story of national calamity in which David intercedes, followed by a list and then a poem, which is followed by a poem, a list, and a national calamity in which David intercedes. And scene. See how that works? So well-structured and organized. So let's begin with the first national calamity, a three-year famine brought on by blood guilt. The Givonites promised safety by Yehoshua in the first days of the Israelite invasion, but massacred by Shaul, who knows when, are now demanding revenge. Seven of Shaul's descendants must be impaled. Are you kidding me? So David, without missing a beat, hands over seven of Shaul's descendants to the Givonites, who are then impaled. (laughs) Ritzpah, daughter of Ayas, one of Shaul's concubines, a mother who lost two of her sons, sits keening over the bodies, guarding the corpses through the hot months of the summer until the rains return in the fall. And this marks the end of the famine. When word of this feat of endurance reaches David, he orders the collection of the bones of Shaul and Yonatan from their sepulcher in Yavesh Gilad, mingles them with the bones of the impaled seven, and buries them all in the tomb of Kish, Shaul's father. Quote, and God then granted the plea for the land. But the calamity has not fully passed. The Philistines are back and on the move, this time led by Ishbi Benob, an offspring of the Titan who wields a giant weapon and targets David for assassination. Only with the last-minute intervention of Avishai ben Sruya does David survive, at which point it is resolved that David should not fight on the front lines any longer but it is a resolution that will have to wait until later to fulfill as the skirmishes with the Philistines continue, involving other titans, giant weapons, and an unnamed titan with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Are you kidding me? So at this point, a poem would offer a nice break from the sheer insanity, and David delivers. Robert Alter observes that narrative books often end with a long poem. Genesis ends with Yaakov's Testament, Moshe's concludes Deuteronomy, Alter is not convinced that the poem here is actually David's, but due to some of the archaic phrasings, David's authorship cannot be wholly discounted. This poem occurs again in the book of Psalms, chapter 18, with some variations. It positions David as in trouble, surrounded by enemies and death, turning to God for salvation, and God, described in highly anthropomorphic terms, comes to save the poet, smiting David's enemies mounting a cherub to fly to the rescue, firing arrows and fiery blasts from his nostrils, parting the seas to rescue David. David praises God for giving him strength and victory and for being his, quote, tower of rescue. Chapter 23 begins the reverse order with another poem praising God before a list of warriors and their crazy exploits like Yoshev Bashevet, head of a unit of three elite warriors who once killed 800 men at one time. These same three warriors also once snuck behind enemy lines to bring David a drink of water from his favorite well in Bethlehem. And then he was too embarrassed to drink it, and so he offered it to God. 
Or Benayah ben Yehoyada, who, quote, went down and killed the lion in the pit on the day of the snow, and also struck down a fearsome Egyptian with his own spear. Are you kidding me? And to finish out the reverse order, a national calamity. This time it's brought about by a census, which God provokes David to do. And when David gives the order to Yoav, Yoav wonders, quote, why should my lord the king desire this thing? There seems to be a lot of superstition around the counting of people, but also some more practical concerns. Counting the people involved a half-shekel payment, which a lot of people did not have. But more controversially, the census signaled possible conscription, which might arouse widespread opposition. Yoav follows his king's command and spends the next nine months and twenty days counting people. And when he returns, he discovers that David has had a change of heart, and the king realizes that what he's done is actually wrong. And he begs God's forgiveness, but God is not in a forgiving mood. Instead, he sends the prophet Gad to give David a choice of punishments. Seven years of famine, three months of running from his enemies, or three days of pestilence. Are you kidding me? Which would you pick? I would definitely pass in the seven years of famine. Too long. And I would absolutely pass in the pestilence even if it was for three days, which leaves... Listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring injuries, four miles an hour. That gives us a radius of six miles. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, and doghouse in that area. Well, David picks C. Bam! Just like that. That's all there is to it, Dustin. That's all there is to it. A winner! And God sends a plague which kills 70,000 people. But the deliverer of the plague, the pestilential angel... Are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. A pestilential angel is standing at the threshing floor of Aravna the Jebusite at the summit of Mount Moriah where David sees him smiting the people, and he begs God for the angel to lash out at him and his household instead of the people. God tells the prophet God to tell David to build an altar on the threshing floor to end the pestilence. David buys the land from Aravna, as well as all the supplies for an altar and sacrifice, near offers, and quote, the Lord granted the plea for the land, and the scourge was pulled back from Israel. Thus endeth the summation, and beginneth, the consideration. I don't even know where to begin with this. And the thing is, I should have known better. I mean, here's what I mean. I've been lulled by the verisimilitude of Second Samuel. I was so deeply vested in the human drama and the political intrigue. It was like reading an ancient version of House of Cards or The West Wing or even Scandal. But then someone goes and whips out a magic wand and casts a binding spell or summons a dragon or a pestilential angel. But I'm getting ahead of myself. And in trying to explain to my son why I declared this episode of Tanakhcast as the what the f***iest episode by far, I didn't use that term with him, but you know what I mean. What it came down to was the image of a, quote, man of huge measure who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all, and he too was sprung from the titan. <laughs> but I want to get back to the first what the f moment of this episode, and there are many. 
First, this business with the Givonites, which touches on an issue discussed in previous episodes of Tanakhcast. Are the sins of the fathers visited upon the sons? One would think that the Tanakh's answer, the Torah's answer, is conclusively no. The very idea seems unfair, totally unjust. Deuteronomy 24 says, quote, Fathers are not to be put to death for sons. Sons are not to be put to death for fathers. Every man for his own sin alone is to be put to death. Except Exodus 20 and 34 say yes, the sins of the guilty will linger even to the third and fourth generation. So too says Numbers 14 and Deuteronomy 5. So, in a sense, the demand of the Givonites is not all that unusual, except there's no mention of Shaul ever attacking the Givonites in 1 Samuel. And yet God tells David of Shaul and his bloodthirsty house and that there has to be a, there's a famine for three years because of this forgotten massacre. Are you kidding me? And it is rather nice of the Givonites not to want to exact a similar fate upon countless Israelites. You know, an eye for an eye and all that, massacre for massacre. Instead, the vengeance is to be meted out specifically on the surviving family members of Shaul's house as if they haven't had enough sorrow and suffering already. And David still refers to Shaul as the Lord's anointed, which is odd because if you remember why David never killed Shaul when he had the chance numerous times, or why David did have the Amalekite killed who finished off the dying Shaul on Mount Gilboa, it was because Shaul's status as the Lord's anointed. I guess that get out of grievous bodily harm card doesn't apply to family. Well, it kind of does for Mephibosheth, who David promised Yonatan that he would protect. So, sucks for you, rest of Shaul's family. Your number is up. And when he turns the sons over to the Givonites, the sons of Shaul are summarily impaled. <coughs> this disturbing image is not to be outdone by that of Ritzpah Baraya, who sits in solitary vigil over the bodies for months, chasing away the carrion eaters. It is this heartbreaking scene that finally compels David to act and organize proper burials. But again, one wonders why this heartbreaking scene is more heartbreaking than the mass impalings. <coughs> which he could have prevented had he refused to hand over Shaul's surviving sons to begin with. And then it just gets more what the f here by the minute, with old villains returning from previous episodes. I thought we had dispensed with the Philistines, or at least the giants, but they're back. You should be Benov with his giant lance. I do not envy you the headache you will have when you awake. But in the meantime, rest well and dream of large women. Who almost kills David, but he is dispatched by Avishai. And then there's Saf, also a giant, and apparently another giant named Goliath. And then <laughs> the six-fingered, six-toed Titan. Are you kidding me? And then there's that poem, the ode and thanks to the uncomfortably anthropomorphic god, who has legs and nostrils and a mouth and all kinds of manly parts and rides on a cherub like Barack Obama on the back of a space unicorn. Space unicorn, soaring through the stars, delivering the rainbows all around the world. Space you see what I mean? This episode just keeps getting better and better. But wait, there's more. Living here in Toronto, where the pizza is, sad to say, subpar, I often have a hankering for a slice of... Lou Malnati's Deep Dish Pizza. I happily frequented Lou's Lincolnwood Branch in Chicago, spending many an hour awaiting the brown butter crust with... Anyway, I would never think to ask someone to go all the way to Chicago to get some for me, 
Although if there are any folks in the 312 or 773 who are listening right now, I mean, if they're there anyway, and it's not too much trouble, I'll take 10, please. But to make a special trip, that's, that's crazy, right? But that didn't stop David, who longed for a drink of water from a well in his hometown of Bethlehem, which happened to be a Philistine garrison. Now, I've been to the U.S. border crossing at Fort Erie and Niagara, Queenston-Lewiston, and the Ambassador Bridge, but none of them were as risky and dangerous as the crossing made by the three heroes through enemy lines and through all kinds of security to draw water from David's favorite well in Bethlehem. And granted, I'm not the king of Ontario, and perhaps the water from the well in Bethlehem was particularly tasty, for it was surely flavored with a lot of nostalgia. But then, after risking life and limb, the heroes bring David the water, and David doesn't drink it. He pours it out as a libation to God. Are you kidding me? Sadly, no, I am not kidding you. He says, quote, Far be it from me that I should do such a thing. What, shall I drink the blood of men who have gone at the risk of their lives? What? What did you think our loyal officers were going to do if you out and out ask them for that water? Pretend not to hear you? And I don't think it's too much to say that one shouldn't ask for water if you're not going to drink it. So whatever thoughts you might be having right now about David and his eccentricities, ratchet them up because what David does in chapter 24 is, well... Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills! There's this whole census mishigas, the odd details of which I don't want to get into, except for the end where God punishes David, but like a weirdly sadistic parent, he gives David the choice about which punishment he's going to get. Thank you, sir. May I have another? And David picks pestilence. Are you kidding me? I guess he was weighing in on the debate sparked by Don Ariely in his 2008 book, Predictably Irrational, about Band-Aids albeit about 3,000 years too early. Is it better to tear the Band-Aid off in one rip or slowly? Ariely argued slowly, and a 2009 Australian study proved the opposite, with science. But I guess David didn't imagine that a three-day plague delivered by a pestilential angel would kill as many people as it did in only 72 hours. <coughs> with 2 Samuel wrapping up here, what is clear is that I have not been all that charitable about Judaism's King Arthur. I've called out David on numerous occasions for his personal foibles, moral failings, and political machinations, and perhaps I've been a bit unfair to Israel's first real king. But after this episode, I think I've had enough. I'm ready for David to go now. Get him out. Ready? Are you ready? Get him out of here! Get him out of here! Get the hell out of here! If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes store, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. I thank you in advance for that. And encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 76, when we begin the first book of Kings with chapters 1 through 3.